Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cracking Addiction. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and we have with us today Dr. Manu Badnagar. So, Manu, I thought we'd talk today about ADHD and how it presents in adults. So, just picking up from the last time, you know, we talked about how the prevalence in children was greater than the prevalence in adults. Would you care to comment on this issue? Yeah, I think we brought up the statistic last time that um, the upper limit of the estimate is that half of adolescents who have ADHD will no longer retain the traits that meet the full diagnostic criteria once they become adults. Um, And I think that's a very established phenomenon, um, something about neuroplasticity, but also um, the skills that someone acquires through high school and adolescence um, allow the disorder part of ADHD to be overcome. Right, right. And, and are we going to take a stab at numbers here, you know, as a percentage of background population? I, I would hesitate to put a number on it right now. And <laughs> here lies the controversy. Um, you know, one of the yeah. interesting things about ADHD is that it is so relatable to so many people that adult ADHD, there is some debate, although this is probably not in the mainstream, that there is something called um, acquired ADHD, so de novo ADHD as a result of things that have happened past the age of 18. Now, from our point of view and regulations and prescribing, such a thing is thought to not exist, Um, but people do report that they had a reasonably fine adolescence and childhood bereft of any of these symptoms, and all of a sudden, all of the symptoms that represent the disorder have manifested in their 20s. Um, It's very contentious at the moment, but it is skewing the numbers that we're finding in terms of what is the real rate of those adolescents graduating into a population who have ADHD versus those who entirely missed and are getting a diagnosis for the first time. So I'd I'd still say it's, um, you know, the prevalence is still somewhere in the region of 2 to 3%, but one of the really important things to think about when we're talking about um, a diagnostic criteria for um, any mental illness is who is applying the criteria. And I think in my experience, I've found people in metropolitan areas are attracting these diagnoses disproportionately to people everywhere else in the country. So you've said a lot there, and I don't even know where to start. But just on your last point, why do you think there's a there's a skewing in the prevalence figures, you know, favoring the metropolitan? Is it simply the availability of diagnosticians and access to services? Or is there another reason? Definitely that. But I I also think, um, and this is particularly more notable post-COVID, people who live in cities have a lot more sedentary jobs, um, a lot more jobs that require sitting down for eight hours and doing a lot of um, work that requires undivided attention. Um, And Mm. perhaps that's not conducive to um, the way the world works now with instant gratification, with social media and a phone in your um, pocket at all times. So these criteria that were formed many, many decades ago for ADHD and these concepts are really being challenged with our understanding of what is functional attention. And people who live in the city, um, they have different abilities to focus, to be honest. A different or perhaps, dare we say it, a reduced ability to focus. So this this inability to you know to demonstrate undivided attention or selective attention yeah. or vigilance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say yeah. 
reduced and um, mm. attention as a symptom is definitely something that's creeping up and up. But yeah. the disorder of it yeah. is separate. Yeah, you tend not to get the adults who say, you know, who, who, who complain of de novo, de novo, the acquisition of the hyperkinetic variant, isn't it? It's, it's all about the inattention. Yeah, yeah. And that's tricky yeah. because... That, that's also the subtype of ADHD that flies under the radar and doesn't get picked up yeah. in some childhood. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. you, could, you could see it from both sides of the coin. Yeah. And notwithstanding your reticence to put a figure on it, you did actually say 2 to 3%, and that's pretty much what I've got in my head. I've got in my head a, a rough prevalence in children of about 5% and a rough prevalence in adults of about 25 you know, 2 to 3%. Yeah. My question then is, is there a cohort of adults who are more likely to have a higher prevalence of ADHD? Yeah. Um, there are many different cohorts of adults who are probably mm. the propensity, um, you know, partly with genetic loading, but also then with psychosocial factors, um, will have a high degree of impulsivity and inattention, which if you provide the right frame, meets the criteria for ADHD. And um, th that that's really difficult to sort of quantify um, because of discrete different populations. But something we know is um, we can see the phenotype at the end for people who have uh, um, ADHD that goes undiagnosed, like emotional dysregulation, chaos in... Um, social relationships and obviously substance use can not only be the cause of tension it can also be symptoms of underlying adhd yeah yeah i suppose we can pause here i mean you know we both are passionate about the 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 care of people with substance use disorders and i, I don't know about you but i frequently come across this conundrum that patients give me they say look doc i've got undiagnosed adhd and we all know that the treatment of ADHD is stimulants. I can't afford an assessment. Therefore, I'm using methamphetamine or amphetamine illicitly as a stimulant to treat my ADHD. And moreover, I know it works for me because my function improves, because I feel better, I've got more energy, and I'm able to focus and do stuff more. Have you ever come across that presentation? Almost exclusively. <laughs> I think yes. that's you know, if someone, it's very hard to tease out, isn't it? I, I think, you know, it's, it's a valid question for someone to be asking. And I think one of the benefits of um, people understanding ADHD, the downside is that everyone thinks they have it, but one of the benefits is that we're talking about it. And as clinicians, we're asking each other questions about um, our cohort, the people that we look after day to day, whether ADHD could be something that we've missed. Um, and mm -hmm. by virtue of having a substance use disorder and being intoxicated or withdrawing constantly, inattention and poor functioning will mm -hmm. come as a result. But we don't understand um, intuitively the longitudinal role of those substances. And self-medicating is a very common um, reflection that most people with addictions will report. And self-medicating for what? Emotional pain, physical pain, depression, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. trauma. But ADHD is something that, um, you know, a lot of people will say they've had a diagnosis as a kid that just lost a follow-up um, and they never tried yeah. stimulants. And once they started using substances, well, no one would give them a prescription for stimulants ever again. Um, and yeah. 
those records. It's a very common story where a disruptive child is diagnosed with ADHD, but the ADHD is so intense that, of course, they don't make the appointments to get repeat prescriptions and have um, valid re-diagnoses as they age. So um, about how common that might be, and in my opinion, it's very common in the cohort that we work with. And then think about the people Mm -hmm. who never got that first diagnosis. Um, Yeah, so I I think it's a markedly under-recognised cohort within within the mentally uh, unwell population. I'm moving further, right? Is it, I don't know if this is actually possible. Is it actually possible in, in, in Australia to get a, a new diagnosis of adult ADHD in the context of methamphetamine use and misuse? Is that even actually possible? And if so, how would you go about teasing it all out? It isn't at the moment good practice to be able to do that. And then a large part is that stimulants are drugs of dependence in and of themselves, um, you know, by their mechanism of action, but also by their classification in Australia. Yeah, I'm not talking specifically during the period of methamphetamine use. I'm talking yeah. someone with a, so I, sorry, I should have clarified, someone with a history of methamphetamine use. So let's say they've been abstinent for, I don't know, three to six months. Would you actually consider that, consider yeah. it theoretically possible or, you know, on a practical level, so on a, on a, you know, practically possible that they could have an ADHD diagnosis given to them? Definitely. And I think, you know, I, I think addiction specialists are probably more game to do this. Um, if you yeah. happen to be comfortable managing the substance use disorder and saying, we can make sure you have urine drug screens and make sure that you are seen quite regularly for monitoring if you relapse. And we can also provide you reference. Mm-hmm. If we do all of that mm-hmm. and make sure your substance use is under control, then a trial of uh, methamphetamines um, that, sorry, Stimulant medications would be <laughs> very interchangeable in my lexicon as well as uh, others. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a common question, you know, methamphetamines um, have the unwanted effect, though, for, for this cohort of causing um, euphoria and psychomotor agitation and, um, you yeah. know, not control timeline. But when you can prescribe yeah. and you can say you can pick it up from the pharmacy at a you know, once a week or something, the aim isn't to have that high, it's to be functional. So you can really titrate the dose yeah. that's happening. And of course, one of the other problems, and I'm sure we'll get into the specific pharmacology of ADHD, but one of the specific problems for people who do misuse or have a history of a methamphetamine use disorder in the context of treating ADHD is that they've literally blown apart their dopamine receptors. And so to get any therapeutic benefit, you really need very high doses. In fact, doses that are higher than those, like the maximum doses that are actually funded by PBS, which again is, an, is another issue in itself. But we, we, we'll, I'm sure we'll do an episode on the pharmacology of treatment later on. One of the, one of the common one of the common uh, presentations that I hear is is that you know, Doc, I've got ADHD, and I know this because any time I take a sedative like, for instance, a benzo or cannabis, for instance, my focus improves. Everyone else is just munching on the couch, watching TV and drinking beer and, you know, just, you know, moving, you know, moving away their focus from life into themselves. Whereas when I take this, it it unlocks activity, it unlocks focus, it unlocks goal-directed work. And so there is this idea that... um, 
for brain for people with ADHD brains, they actually respond differently to sedatives and stimulants compared to other people. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I I've um, looked into this, and it's, it's not just to, um, limited to ADHD. I think that there is this idea that all of those people who have a paradoxical reaction to benzodiazepines or antihistamines uh, are some form mm. divergent and mm-hmm. uh, autistic spectral disorder or ADHD. There is some evidence that I haven't fully delved into, but um, there is a common consensus mm. um, amongst some clinicians that that's somewhat of a pathognomonic sign of neurodivergence. Yeah. So I don't the paradoxical know. Paradoxical response. Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know, I guess, how, clinically, um, how much weight you can put on that mm. because um, yeah. everyone with ADHD has a paradoxical reaction to um, sedatives. Yeah. Definitely is a theory worth considering. Hmm. Yeah, it's something that makes me think about the question: Does this patient in front of me have ADHD? But you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's certainly not something you'd rely on. You think about um, some, uh, the wandering not matching up, and you know, the, the typical yeah. ward pathways yeah. um, people without ADHD have might not be yeah. lined up correctly with others. Mm-hmm. Another another presentation or a phenotype, even if you will, is for me is the the treatment resistant adult. Mm. And by that I mean, you know, the, the any the adult with a mental health disorder that's just not getting better. In fact, any mental health disorder, the treatment resistant depression, the treatment resistant anxiety, the treatment resistant borderline personality disorder, the treatment resistant uh, hazardous consumption of substances, uh, the harmful pattern of consumption, all of these things, all of these things, at some point, they all, it all says to me, does this patient have ADHD? Is that yeah. the reason why they're just not getting better? What, what would you say to that? I think the difference with ADHD is that medications, stimulant medications are often thought to be first line. And then it goes beyond that where they're thought to be the be all and end all of treatment. And that's a common misconception. Um, and if you could use ADHD as one of many examples within mental health um, to explain the, the problems economically with funding treatment for anything, it's, it's a perfect example because a pill is very cheap for the government to subsidize or for even a patient to pay. But really what the evidence shows us is while you have that optimum dopaminergic environment while you're on stimulant medication it's prime time to learn new strategies and engage in ADHD coaching or psychological functioning to then enact neuroplasticity and undo those um, habits that someone's learned um, by years of being untreated Um, so the inattention is you know temporarily fixed with stimulant medications but to make lasting changes um, you really need that wraparound psychosocial support and sometimes treatment resistance isn't always um, about therapeutic nihilism and a failure it's about what other types of treatments can I tack on to this before we give up yeah yeah that's a very good point how do you define what you're really saying is well look okay that's all well and good but how do you define treatment resistance and is it simply the failure response to pharmacotherapy or is it actually the the failure to respond to pharmacotherapy and appropriate wraparound services for all of the other mental health conditions before yeah. you start moving into is this idea very good point well said yeah you know um i'm just trying to think about any other presentations of, of, of adult adhd 
that you might get, in, especially in, a, in an adult that doesn't necessarily have the benefit of hindsight and, 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 a, and a diagnosis in childhood. Is there any other type of presentation that you might see? Um, often I will find depression and anxiety both being a masquerade and um, a comorbidity for, for ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they're, they're in, in specialist um, land. There are sort of two camps and people will often present to a psychiatrist who only works with adults who have ADHD and say, oh, I, I think I have anxiety. I think my mood's been a bit low. And they'll walk out of there with a script for stimulant medications and a retrospective diagnosis. And then another camp where someone will have all of the symptoms of ADHD, but be given antidepressants to treat it. And I think um, a thorough assessment will often show you that um, the deficits in functioning that happen with anxiety and depression also happen um, with ADHD. So the inattention part of all three of those happens in the same part of your brain. In the prefrontal cortex, really, uh, it's way more complicated. Um, But that's where that dopaminergic flow is really lacking, and that's where um, executive function planning needs to come up. Um, So I think the population that most likely is missed is um, someone who self-reports worsening anxiety and worsening depression, but not just um, for days or weeks, but bouts of it for a long time because they're quietly suffering with the functional impacts of having ADHD and not receiving a proper diagnosis because they haven't seen mm-hmm. someone who wants to give them that diagnosis. But by the same token, um, those di- disorders, depression and anxiety, can be treated, and once that's done, mm-hmm. you can then consider whether ADHD exists or not. Yeah, I, I like what you said about the inattention and the, pre- the prefrontal cortex really being the seat of all acquired inattention syndromes, not just that associated with ADHD. And I suppose really I'm thinking about it, this in the context of all roads lead to, lead to Rome. So really yeah. the inattentive prefrontal cortex is the final common pathway yeah. of all effectively you know the vast majority of mental health disorders including substance use disorders yeah and therefore as we've said previously really the the, part of the diagnostic art is actually to explore that differential diagnosis so you know what what what's your approach to that differential diagnosis you know in this acquired adult inattentive syndrome you know what, what do you think what do you look for i've got in my mind you know a couple of diagnoses that i think are really important to exclude but Tell me yeah. your thoughts are. Well, I think, yeah, that, that's, you know, really important because more than more common than not, people will come in saying, I think I have ADHD. So there's already a preconceived idea of what ADHD is and there's a lot of investment mm. emotionally into yeah. understanding oneself through that frame. So doing it in a way that's inquisitive and providing psychoeducation is really important rather than just mm. rattling off a list of diagnoses and um, symptoms and saying you don't have this and you do have that. I think providing education, my, my the way that I approach it is often doing a thorough assessment and pointing out as we're doing the assessment, you know, this can also impact your assessment, uh, your diagnosis of um, ADHD because um, they share common science. For example, one of the most common presentations where people will report inattention is when they have um, a long-standing cannabis use disorder. And... Mm that I find is becoming increasingly more 
common. Um, it might not be to the yeah. point where disorder um, but you know often people have prescribed cannabis and they find that that helps in other parts of their mental health um, but it causes them sleep disturbances and inattention rather than mm. sort of understanding how cannabis can impact them they might wonder yeah. if they have a diagnosis so substance use disorders are very you know commonly um, things to exclude and I often suggest to people to have a washout period before we embark upon a conversation about assessment because that will muddy the picture. Um, something else I often talk about is PTSD um, and personality disorder. And I think... Um, yeah, you just hit my list. <laughs> you just ticked <laughs> off all of my list. Substance <laughs> PTSD and borderline, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things that I want to say to that. So we do know that actually cannabis use disorder really will bugger up... Um, it'll bugger up REM sleep. Yeah. Uh, so if you've got if, and if you've got no REM sleep, then you know yeah. you you've got no sleep per se. So again, insomnia will then lead to inattention because you can't focus because you're too tired. Um, and, you know, and the same thing with alcohol. I, I'm, I'm not sure of the effects of other substances specifically on the sleep hypnogram, but um, cannabis definitely does that. And, and as some, you've said, oh, go on. There is some really good evidence, and um, this is. A burgeoning field uh, of people who have ADHD also having a delayed sleep phase disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And the idea of de novo or acquired ADHD, a lot of people are saying that, well, it's not the same kind of ADHD. This is ADHD that's secondary to a delayed sleep phase disorder in adolescence. And mm. of taking a good sleep history and fixing that sleep phase. So sleep delayed sleep phase is yeah. when more naturally want to go to sleep at three a.m. and then wake up at 11 a.m. or midday or something like that. Yeah. So the timeline is skewed, but they have to conform to the norms of society. And, uh, yeah, cannabis can do the exact same thing by depriving you of restful sleep. Yeah. And, of course, it's also important to understand that teenagers and adolescents per se have delayed sleep phase, so they are actually genetically designed to stay up late, watch TV and play on the PlayStation and, and also get up late for school, and much to the chagrin of parents, schools, and society. And it is a constant source of wonderment for me to yeah. ask, why, do, why, are, why are schools that are catering for the needs of, say, year 10, 11, 12 students scheduled for 9 o'clock? This just does not make sense to me. You should schedule them for 10 or even 11. Oh, look, uh, I, you know, they're all going to make their own breakfast. So mom and dad can go to work and leave them at home. You know? That was one of my biggest struggles, making it to school for 8.30 starts. And then I went, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to do that anymore. But then they're scheduled 8 a.m. lectures and I wasn't very much older. So it's no, definitely... No, 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 no. So for anyone watching, you know, when you're young and you're late teens and early 20s, getting up early is actually not part of your genetics. So, Manu, what do you think about this idea that I've heard from other esteemed colleagues that um, borderline personality disorder is actually the manifestation of a combination of an undiagnosed ADHD with an undiagnosed depression or mood disorder? What, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept, and um, it makes sense intuitively because all three of those disorders share the same neurological underpinnings. Um, the difference is in treatment modality. So I would often get a patient um, present to me with a referral saying, I think I have ADHD, but in their past history, they've been 
given the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and don't like that label. And it's a very stigmatizing label. So depression and ADHD not only are potentially valid uh, in that the patient will experience symptoms of those diagnoses, they're less stigmatic and there are medications to treat it, whereas with borderline personality, there aren't. I think my, my aim is always to be inquisitive and ask why they would prefer those diagnoses over the others. And perhaps if they haven't been offered treatment for borderline personality disorder, offer that to them and see if that makes a difference. Because the impulsivity and the emotional dysregulation that can happen with borderline personality disorder can clearly be seen with um, ADHD as the impulsivity and the, the lack of um, focus on a particular thing at a particular time and the emotional dysregulation of low mood in depression. So it's a very ideal concept to understand someone with BPD, but in terms of validity, you really need to be applying the diagnostic criteria of BPD over a long period of time and um, establish this pattern of behaviour from very, very early on in adolescence to be able to then effectively give treatment. One thing that I will mention that um, completely undoes everything I've just said is that in Scandinavia, they've um, done a randomized control trial and uh, also a meta-analysis of um, those who have had long-standing diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And they've looked at um, all of the medications possibly that could have been used on a forest plot that treat BPD. And the number one medication that prevents suicidality <laughs> in people with BPD is dexamphetamine. So... I think it's <laughs> where does the truth lie? <laughs> the fact that you know stimulants and dopaminergic activity isn't just applied to ADHD. Like there might be benefits that will come in time um, once we stop worrying so much about addiction and overdose, those kind of things. That we can use the right drug for the right medication. Um, sorry, sorry, right <laughs> diagnosis without having to stick to labels. And the final differential, if it, as you said in, in your previous comments, the trauma, PTSD, how would you describe the role of trauma in this acquired inattention syndrome as we've discussed? Yeah. Um, firstly, there's PTSD and then there's complex PTSD. And in the mm. first instance, it's an acute, relatively acute, you know, it's over a month, but less than 12 months. Um where someone has a constellation of symptoms around the particular trauma where they had a sense of uh, potentially losing their life um, or fearing that someone else might lose their life. And in that time frame, um, people can be very hyper-aroused, hyper-vigilant about that threat returning and their um, re-witnessing of those environments can often preoccupy their mind. So the idea of focus there goes away, but it's quite uncommon for people with the sort of acute kind of PTSD to masquerade or present as potentially having ADHD. More commonly, we're seeing it in people who have complex PTSD, where you've had many repeated traumas from a very, very long time. Um, and this is similar to borderline personality disorder in um, phenotype, but also probably in the, in the uh, biological underpinnings, where... Um, the, the trauma is so incessant and accrues so much over time when the brain is developing that it can result in um, a poor 
poorly regulated emotional system, um, but also misfiring um, dopaminergic pathways. So for, for commonly um, for people who have returned back from war in the 1950s after World War II, um, they would find that substance use disorder and a lack of functioning would follow after PTSD um, because of the inability to hold down a job and pay attention and do the things that good citizens would normally do. So that inattention can develop over time because of a lack of um, focus onto a particular task. All right. Look, Manu, I think we've run out of time. Uh, I really want to thank you for your expertise today, and I really do hope we can chat again very soon. Thank you, Manu. Thanks for your time, Fergal. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Cracking Addiction.